There's other things we could be doing on Sunday mornings. There's other ways to, to make ourselves feel content and happy. There's easier ways to live our life. We can, we can answer the call to worship. We can recognize the call to worship and, and recognize that Jesus is the one to worship because of the cross, because of his work through the cross. And we see that exemplified in his seven sayings, the seven things he says on the cross that demonstrates to us, it gives us snapshots of his work. It gives us, it gives us a, a microcosm, a, a point where we can see much truth across scripture laid out in just a few words. And that's, what we're, that's, that's, that's where we're headed today. The first word from the cross is the word of forgiveness. Now, we all know, I mean, we, we know we want to be forgiven. We, we can appreciate that when we do things wrong, we want to experience forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is about removing guilt from an offender. Someone who, someone who um, does something wrong, we want to experience that forgiveness. For example, criminals, when they go to court, you know, if they're guilty, they really want to receive some level of forgiveness so that they don't have to be the ones to pay their debt. Because if you murder somebody, most people don't think, well, I murdered this person. I really deserve to go to jail for life, or I deserve to be killed for my crime. Most people don't react that way. They throw themselves on the mercy of the court. They want to receive forgiveness. More than likely, most of you are not murderers and aren't in a place where you can identify completely with that, but maybe, just maybe, in your everyday relationships and the way that you interact with one another or people you work with or people you work for, you can recognize times where you have done something wrong and need forgiveness and want forgiveness. Now, I'll give you an example. When I was working at Worldwide, most of you know I was an aircraft mechanic for a, a long time, way, way longer than I probably uh, want to even say out loud, but I was an aircraft mechanic, and, and the reality was I used to be proud of myself for my work ethic, and I, I just was really proud of the fact that I was dependable, I got the job done, I took care of business, you know, people came asking my opinion, and so I'd, I'd gained a reputation, and I'm not saying that to be arrogant, That's not, it just was the truth, it was the reality of what was happening. But sometimes in my excitement and my desire to get things done, I tore things up. I broke a thing here or there. And in fact, it was one time in particular, we had just moved into a brand new hangar. The boss had spent about a million dollars on this hangar. We had just moved in. Within a couple of weeks, I'm outside doing engine runs on an airplane. We had struggled with, with the problem on this airplane for oh, about three days. They asked me and another guy that's another guy that they would call in whenever there was problems that we couldn't figure out. They they called us in. They said, "Please work on it Saturday. Figure it out. Try to try to fix the problem." So we spent about ten or twelve hours there that Saturday working through all of the issues that we could figure out that that we could think of that could cause what we were seeing. At the end of the day, we came up with an answer. We were trying to resolve the problem, and we thought we need to test it. So we cranked the engines where the airplane was sitting. We were just sitting running engines, not pulling any major power, not doing anything crazy, doing something we really would have done any other day of the week without ever thinking twice about it. And a van pulls up. And the person in the van gets out. It's a woman. She's saying something to us. Of course, we can't hear. She doesn't have a radio. She's saying something to us. And I'm, I was like, can you tell what she's saying? And he says, no, I can't tell. Can you? No, I can't tell. So I shut an engine down. I'm going to climb out, and I'm going to talk to her, find out what's the big problem. 
As I was opening the airplane door, it dawned on me. I'm picturing in my mind what her mouth is saying. And it dawned on me. I made out, you blew the wall off. <laughs> that sounds, I mean, I didn't know what to expect at that point. It sounded bad. You know, it's, I mean, not sounded, but it looked bad in my eyes. I mean, in, my, in my imagination, I'm picturing her mouth. You blew the wall off. Whoa. <laughs> so I opened the door, and I look back, and I can see through the siding, two planks of siding, big, tall, white metal siding, about 30 feet tall, blown over on the other pieces of siding. Insulation's gone, and I can see directly into this brand-new hangar. I was like, oh, this is really bad. It's worse than what I expected. I can tell you, in that moment, in that moment, I wanted forgiveness. Oh, man, I wanted forgiveness. I just knew that I was fired. I knew I was done. Thankfully, my boss heard about it, and he forgave me. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal with forgiveness. Whether it's between your boss and you as an employee, whether it's between you and your spouse, you and your friend, you and other family members, the reality is when we wrong people, we certainly want forgiveness. It's something that I think comes natural to us. But on the flip side, forgiveness, while offered freely, is not necessarily free. It's pretty costly. I used to brag, or I not used to brag, but I used to say that if a person wasn't tearing something up, it was because they weren't doing anything. And that made me feel good because I had made some mistakes, but the reality was I was constantly in a place where I was looking for forgiveness. And oftentimes I cost my boss a lot of money because of my attitude and my lack of ability or my lack of desire to pay attention to detail and things like that because I just wanted to get the job done. The reality is it cost him dearly at times. Here's the thing. As Christ is hanging there on the cross, as he was there on the cross that day, we, we recognize we need to go to him forgiveness, for, for forgiveness. But don't miss the fact as we study the passage today that this forgiveness did not come free. You receive, is it, receive it as a gift, but it came at a very high price. We're going to be in Luke. It's, for, it's, it's the place where we find the first words from Christ on the cross <clears throat> if you've got a Bible, you're certainly welcome to turn there with us. The, words, the, the verses will be on the screen. If you've got a smart device or a smart phone or something along that lines, you can follow along with the notes on Version Live as well if you have that app. Luke chapter 23, we'll start in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the school, they were crucified with him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, that is, this is the king of the Jews. Now, we're, we, we jump right into the middle of that narrative. So we don't get the whole context 
in this passage of what's really going on. But I want you to have it in your mind's eye. But we're, we're doing this simply for time's sake, simply because to, to, to read all of it and try and deal with all of it, we wouldn't have time for it. But just, just put back in your head and, and think back to, to what you know of the story of the cross. Jesus had been, his morning had started in the wee hours of the morning. His morning had started with being falsely accused, being arrested, being tried, and being falsely found guilty in front of the Jewish people that he had come to, finding himself rejected by his own people. And they bring him to the Romans to deal with because the Jews didn't have the ability or the authority to to bring judgment or actual physical condemnation. They They didn't have the ability to follow through completely with everything that they wanted done. So they bring him to the Romans. We want him crucified. We want him dead. We want him gone. We don't want to deal with him anymore. And so Pilate, who is the person that he ends up with, Pilate says, you know, I can't really find anything wrong with him. Let me beat him. Let me have him beat and see if that satisfies your desire for justice. And so he sends him to be flogged. If you know anything about the Roman flogging, it was not a nice event. If you've seen the passion of the Christ, that might not even do it justice. The reality is there's a horrible, horrific event in which many people died in the midst of, in the middle of. I don't think because of our our whitewashed perspectives and our civilized way of doing things, I think it's difficult for us to really imagine the the ferociousness, the, the, the violence that was inflicted upon people as this occurred, as they were beaten. Horrible. He stripped naked. He was wrapped at one point in a purple robe and a crown of thorns pressed on his head and people laughed at him and spit on him and hit him. That's just how the day started. And when that wasn't enough, when that wasn't enough, the Jews continued to press Pilate. And he says, how about Barabbas or Jesus? And I think Pilate really thought he had an out here because Barabbas was nobody that they wanted running around in their streets. Barabbas wasn't a nice guy. He was a criminal. He was was an insurrectionist. He caused all kinds of problems. He would be like us letting Osama bin Laden go. Maybe maybe that would be a good good way to to, uh, think of it. If we had him and decided, well, I'd rather he be loose than Jesus. That's the idea. I think think Pilate thought he had an out. Pilate didn't have an out. In fact, they began to just push harder and harder. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This, This court, Pilate's court, just full of Jews. Full of Jews who had seen Jesus working miracles, who had seen his power, who had heard his teaching. Many of whom who days before had greeted him on his way into Jerusalem, throwing down palm fronds in front of the donkey that he rode into the city. And here he is, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate having no other way out, or seemingly no other way out, says, all right. And he washes his hands as if we can wash our hands of Jesus. He washes his hands and he says, crucify him. And so they strap his cross to his bloody beaten back. He's likely fully naked at this point to simply make him more embarrassed and humiliate him even further. And they make him walk to the place where they're going to crucify him. He is so worn out and beaten down and and exhausted, he can't make it. And they bring in Simon of Syria, who who they tell him, all right, you got to carry this cross. And so this guy helps Jesus with this cross the rest of the way. 
They get to the place where they're going to crucify him. They lay him down, his bloody beaten back on a rough, rugged cross. And they stretch his hands out and they nail his hands to the tree or to the cross. And then they overlap his feet and run a nail straight through them. And then they lift the cross up. And there he is, being laughed at and mocked and ridiculed in a place he didn't deserve to be. And then, then he says these words that to me, I, I find them extremely intriguing and inspiring. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, we don't know exactly when he said it. We don't know if it was just before the nails went piercing through his hands. We don't know if it was as the nails were piercing his hands or after the cross is raised and his full weight is suspended from these three points. We don't know when he said it. We just know he said it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, I think, just imagine this. Just imagine this. In our scheme of things, in our way of justice, in our perspectives, in the way that our world works, Jesus is the one guy who has every right to scream out, to call foul, to demand a recount. He has every right to, to be fighting this every step of the way. He has every right to be railing against the guys who are nailing him to the cross. He has every right to be cursing Pilate. He has every right to be condemning and screaming curses upon the Jews that, that condemned him. He has every right. We don't like injustice. And knowing that Jesus is an innocent man, no one would have blamed him if this is what he would have done. No one would have said a word. No one would have thought twice if this is how he would have reacted. But on the cross, as Jesus had every right to be heard, but rather than pleading for himself or railing against those who condemned him, he pleaded for them. He pleaded for others. Is that not shocking? Is that not, is that not inspiring? I mean, is this not the guy that I want to, is this not the guy that you want to follow and be like and aspire to be? It's, it's, it's amazing. Every right. Every right. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I just, we've got to put it in perspective. I don't know anybody here that's been crucified, and I doubt you'd be here had you been crucified. And some of us don't like getting bad service at a restaurant. Some of us don't like the way our, our creditors deal with us when we don't pay. Some of us get angry when people make mistakes with us. And Jesus, hanging there, knowing full well he's been falsely condemned, falsely accused at the hands of evil people. Hanging on a cross. Well, I think there's some things we can learn from this. I think there's some things we can learn in it. 
And the first I would say or the point out is that when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he meant it. This isn't a suggestion. This was a command that Jesus didn't just expect to be followed, that he patterned his life after. If there was going to be a time in which Jesus didn't live up to his preaching, you might think this would be it. But even here, this, this teaching from the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most popular, most uh, famous sermons that Jesus ever preached. And in the midst of it, he comes to this point where he's teaching people. He's like, you've heard it said to love your, your, your friends, to, to love and take care of one another. He says, that's not enough. It doesn't go far enough. He extends the standard. He says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Not many of us get all excited about doing that. But if a time was going to come in which his teaching would not add up or equal his action, you think this would be it. And here Jesus is not just preaching it, but living it. I mean, consider, consider who it is that Jesus is praying for. First and foremost, maybe primarily in his mind, is those Roman soldiers. They have, just, they, they have just run some nails through his hands and his feet. They have beaten him. They've mocked him. They've ridiculed him. They've humiliated him. I think that counts for persecution. Pilate, a, a weak leader who was afraid to take a stand, he, he was pressured politically. We can find all kind of justification for Pilate, but Pilate, knowing he was wrong, tried to wash his hands of it can't wash your hands of Jesus. The Pilate, a week later, afraid to take a stand, gives into the pressure and fear of man and condemns Jesus to death. It was his word that sent Jesus to the cross. Before that, Jesus had an option. There was an out. He could have said, no, we're not going to do that. But it was, Jesus, or it was Pilate's command that did it. The Jews, of course, they stood in Pilate's court and they picked Barabbas and, and, and they screamed out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They, they were not innocent. Had they not been there? Had they not gone to this place and pushed for this? Pilate would have never felt that pressure. Certainly those are enemies. Certainly those are people who stand against him. You know, it's likely that Jesus was even considering the Jew, Jewish leaders that had Started the whole thing early, early, early in the morning. In the high priest's court, falsely accusing him, rigging a jury against him, doing everything they could to get this, to get this condemnation. Certainly, as, as, as he stood there, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that as he's there in the midst of this moment that these people aren't on his mind, that he's not considering them. But isn't it possible, isn't it possible that, that these people that Jesus prayed for in this physical moment that, that, were, that, that were there in front of him, that were part of this experience, isn't it possible that they were just tangible examples of all of humanity? Isn't it possible that as Jesus prayed for them in this moment, that he was not just thinking about them, but that, that there was something higher and more spiritual and, and deeper and more intentional about his prayer? Isn't it possible that maybe just maybe jesus was also praying for us 
isn't it possible? I mean, the truth is this. It might as well have been me swinging the hammer. It, it might as well have been me denying him and handing him over to, to be killed. It might as well have been me and you, everyone else, standing in that court crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We, we can number ourselves among those people who are guilty for sending him to the cross. Because the reality is this, is that the reason Jesus was able to be in a place where he was asking his father to forgive because Jesus was always in a place of power. He was there because he chose to be there. He was there because he allowed himself to be there. He was there simply because he and the father had decided he was going to be there that day. He's praying for these people, not simply because of the sin in the moment. If that was the case... I the significance of the cross would be a little less. But there's so much more happening in this moment. Now, our sin, our sin put him there. The sin of those that have come before us put him there. The sin of those that came before them, the sin all the way back to Adam put him there. We are all these enemies we are all in this place where we stand in opposition to God. We're all guilty and responsible for his death. And just in case you wonder if that's true, let me just give you some verses. Because it's not my opinion that matters at the end of the day. Romans. Oh, man, if you've read Romans, you know there's not a lot of room. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God. That doesn't sound good. That's not something we ask for for Christmas. Do we? No, man, that's bad. We don't want the wrath of God. That sounds terrible. Why is it? Because of unrighteousness. Let's skip down to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That doesn't say a lot of good stuff about mankind. You know, I mean, that doesn't paint a good picture of us. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, or 10, yeah, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I, I, just to be clear, I think what he's saying is, no one does good. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. I, are, we, are you getting that? There's, there's not an exception. No one but Seth. No one but, put your name there. there. There's not an exception. No one but those people that were born on Fridays. Yeah, that's, there's not, it doesn't say that. No one means no one. Romans 3, 23, for all, another universal term, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 8, here's, here's a little bit less dark of a passage, a little less harsh. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We're all sinners. 
But God loved his enemy, those who stood in opposition to him, those who stood against him. While we were yet sinners, Christ did this work. It was no accident that day that Jesus was on the cross. And so don't mistake, don't mistake that he was, and think that he was under the power of these people. But he is certainly concerned for their eternity. He's certainly concerned for their welfare, concerned for their good. When Jesus taught that we were to love our enemies and pray for those that hurt us or that persecute us, he meant it. He lived it. I don't know of a clearer example of anybody doing that than this moment as he's hung on the cross. The second thing I want you to think about today is that Jesus desires forgiveness even for sins committed in ignorance. Did you hear what he said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We like to let people off because they don't have an understanding of things, right? I mean, I was told when I started driving, I was told ignorance of the law is not an excuse. So just because I don't know the speed limit's 35 and I want to drive 60, that's not an excuse. I'll still get a ticket. Well, at least that's the way it was when I was first starting driving. I don't know if it's still that way or not. You know, somebody might say, oh, I didn't think it was illegal to molest that kid. Are we going to let them off? Well, absolutely not. That's, un that's unthinkable. We can't let that happen. Ignorance, it's not an excuse. But Jesus is praying not just for what they're doing in the moment, what they recognize and know they're doing. He's praying for what they don't know they're doing. He's concerned about their sins of ignorance. And you see it all the way through the Mosaic Law. You can see over and over and over places in the Old Testament in, in the law where it says that if a man, if anyone commits a sin unintentionally, if, they, if you do it accidentally, if you sin unintentionally, there's still a list of things they were expected to do. The reality is, is God holds us accountable for every sin, whether we recognize it or not. I mean, knowledge. Knowledge doesn't make an act sinful. But the motives of the heart do. Did you hear back in Romans? Think about this with me just for a second. Think about what it said in Romans. Well, in fact, bring it back up. I wasn't going to go here, but we, we're just going to do it. And you guys just hang with me. In Romans it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's the motive of their actions? Their motive of their actions is, is not to be grateful to God and recognize him as, as God. Their motive in their actions... It's something totally different. They're, they're, their thinking is futile. They're, not, they're darkened. They're, they're walking in a state where they can't see the truth. See, these motives that lead us to do stuff, that's what makes things sinful. Let's consider it in terms of what we're speaking about today and what we're thinking about the Jewish leaders. Do you think they really thought, let's be evil and kill Jesus? You think they got together and said, I know the most evil thing we can do, let's do it. I, I doubt it. I don't think so. You see, the reality is, is that they thought that this man was a blasphemer. They thought that they were defending their own people. I think they had the best of intentions. But you know what really motivated them to act that way? It wasn't their people. They were afraid to lose their following. They were afraid 
to go where this guy was calling them to go. They were afraid to believe in him as the Messiah. Well, let's think about Pilate. Pilate probably didn't wake up that morning thinking, hmm, I can commit an evil act today. Get to send an innocent man to the cross. Boy, that makes me feel good. I'll sleep good tonight. He probably didn't, he probably didn't think that way. But feel the political pressure. He's, he's in a place where already there's tension between him and Rome, or them and Rome. He's in a place where every day is walking a line of trying to keep peace between these two people. He's stuck. He's really got no real authority except what's given to him by Rome. He's really got no power to affect change in these people because they will not listen. And yet he's stuck there to rule. You ever been stuck in what you feel like is a catch-22? I mean, there's no way I'm going to win this one. So you feel like you pick maybe what's the lesser of two evils. But I'm going to say he had a third option. He could have ignored the pressures of people. He could have ignored what they wanted him to do and done what he known was right, what he knew was right. You see how his motives led him to a place to act sinfully? He was living in fear of man. Well, let's think about the Roman guards. The Romans that brought him to the cross, they were just following orders, right? I mean, they couldn't have, I mean, they're really not responsible for their actions. They're just doing what they're told. They were told to beat him. Yeah, they were. And if they had if they had not beaten him, they probably would have gotten killed. If they had not crucified him, they probably would have been murdered also. Jesus still would have died. But think about the ridicule. I mean, at some level, there's this dark motive that's within them, this seditious, vicious motive. These men who had been trained to be killers, they knew what was going on. They knew it. That's why they called him the king of the Jews. That's why they put the purple robe on him. That's why the sign went up over his head. They knew that this guy was different, that he was supposedly special. But their motives pushed them to act in a certain way. So you see, motives, it's, it's not the knowledge that makes an act sinful. It's what's at the heart of the, at the, heart of the action. Is if, if, a, if a rich guy comes and he says, you know what? I know people are hungry in Springfield, and I'm going to give them all of my money so that they never have to be hungry again. Man, that seems like a really noble thing to do, right? This is special, man. We, we would probably have a day in Springfield for that guy. I mean, I don't know. What would we call it? homeless eat free day or something i don't know well it would be pretty special i bet his name would be in the news i bet his name would be in our papers we may even name the day after him the reality is is that this guy came and he's like trying to give money away simply so he can get a big fat tax deduction or he can have fame who's that motive about does it deny that his money will do good stuff no that deny that people will feel the benefit of that money but the motive of his heart is dark. See, sinful acts, sinful acts are always motivated, motivated by selfish gain. Sinful acts, they always have selfish motives. They're always going to satisfy our desires, our, our perspectives, our wants. They're always going to be about us exalting ourselves and finding satisfaction for ourselves. That's what these sinful acts do. Because once we remove God from the picture, once we're in that place where we no longer have to recognize God, we get to design gods of our own understanding, of our own uh, uh, desires. And you know what that does? 
That simply allows us to be our own God. Because we get to be the one in charge and in power over the gods we create. We get to be the ones that determine how they act and how they respond. We get to be the ones who demand for them to be certain ways. We get to, one, to be the one to design them to our perspectives. You see, it's always about selfishness. It's always about this, this inward drawing ourselves to a place where we are exalted over others. The knowledge, it doesn't, it doesn't make for sinful acts. It's the motives that lead to those actions. But the reality is, is that there was a level even beyond that, even beyond sinning on this horizontal plane. There's a level that, that, that moves even beyond that. These Jews, the, the, the Romans, Pilate, they knew they were condemning a dude that probably didn't deserve what he was getting. They knew it. It's obvious in the, rec in, in the recordings of it. And even for those that didn't, you know, I mean, the reality is, is they, they still killed him. And in ignorance, they didn't just kill another man. They killed God. They literally killed God. Now, certainly they didn't cause him to cease to exist. Certainly God didn't quit because they killed him. But Jesus, being fully man and fully God, they killed him. The irony of all of this is, is that they had no ability, they had no way of even knowing because they were blind and dark. Think of this. I mean, consider it. Just think about it. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thinking that they are going to be made to see like God. Is that not ironic? I mean, think about it. That, to me, is ironic. Oh, that fruit is going to give me knowledge. I'm going to know everything like God. And really, that's a big, fat lie. And they got duped. And all of a sudden, they are brought into darkness where what they can know is so limited and finite that they can't see beyond the, 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 the physical place in which they stand. They have no perspective by which to see that they're killing God's son have no perspective to see that there's a spiritual implication here. Have no perspective because they are walking in darkness. And so in contrast to the tree in the garden where knowledge and of good and evil brought darkness, on his tree, Jesus, fighting to overcome that, and bring us into the light so that we can see. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They can't see it. They can't comprehend it. They, they can't fully understand the weight of their actions. Jesus is concerned and wants to see them forgiven, not just for the sins they know, but the sins that they commit in ignorance. He wants the same for you and me. We walk every day thinking we've got it figured out. We walk every day in this, in this perspective that we think, oh, well, I go to church on Sunday. I, I go to church on Wednesday. I, I, I've got a small group Bible study in my house. I, I do this. I do that. I, I've got it all figured out. Don't ever count on yourself. Don't ever think that you've ever come to a place that you don't need this moment on the cross. And Jesus pleading for you, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Your hearts, my heart, we, are, we, we deceive ourselves 
Jeremiah cried out, cried this out. He pleaded with people to understand this. He says in, in Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, the heart is deceitful above all things. Sometimes we don't even know what our real motives are. We're, we're so good at deceiving ourselves, we don't even know what our motives are. We don't even know that it, it's not really to be famous and to exalt ourselves. We can't even tell because our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's a question. Who can understand it? He gives the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God sees into this. He knows. And as much as we can deceive ourselves, we will never deceive him. Father, forgive them. They walk in ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. And the third thing, Jesus appeals to his father for forgiveness. Did you hear? Father, forgive them. He appeals to his father because it's God's forgiveness that we need first. Every sin at its core is against God. That's why when David, when, when David was, he, he sees Bathsheba. Oh, and Bathsheba, apparently she just, man, she was like all he wanted. Wow, she looks good. He's in, his, he's in his castle. She's out on her rooftop bathing, and he lusts after her. Oh, I want her. Man, do I want her. I can't stop thinking about her. Got to have her. So he takes her, commits adultery with her. She gets pregnant, and all of a sudden, he's got to deal with the circumstances, the consequences of, of his decision. He's like, oh, I know how to handle this. It's a time for war. I'll, I'll send her husband Uriah. I'll send him out. He'll go. I'll send him to the front lines. There's no way he'll make it there. And he's killed. And David thinks he got away with it. And a prophet shows up one day. Says, God knows what you did. Oh, and David, once he realizes he got caught, you know what happened? He goes into mourning. He, he begins repenting. He thought he had it done. He thought it was over with. God shows up and says, David, you're a sinful man. And David repents. And in the midst of his repentance, his mourning, in the midst of this, he writes Psalm 51. And in the, in, in the, in the response to God, he says, against you alone have I sinned. Every sin at its core is an offense to God. If you don't get it from the passage in David, then certainly you see it in those passages from Romans. You see, the reality is, is that all we do in sin is against God. It, it, it places us in opposition to him. It makes us his enemy. These people certainly were the enemy of Jesus that day. But, but don't, don't miss it. He's pleading with his father to act on their, on, their, on their behalf. He's pleading with his father to do for them what they need done. Because we need God's forgiveness first. It doesn't deny that we need forgiveness between one another. It doesn't deny that we need to be walking with one another saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And asking for that. And then the person extending it. It doesn't deny that people out in the world all over the place strive to walk together with some level of peace between one another. Striving to let bygones be bygones. Striving to let wrongs be gone and, and let people go and let people not deal with all the heavy consequences. Certainly that happens. But those moments, they have no eternal significance. They end now. I mean, they're done. There's so much more happening at the cross. And it doesn't matter how good we can make this life here. 
the day we die, we're going to want something much stronger than our neighbor's forgiveness for not cutting our grass as often as he does. We're going to want something much stronger, more powerful than a forgiveness that says, I can go into a place where people used to ridicule me. We're going to want something much more, much farther reaching than the forgiveness of our friends and family. We need it. And see, Jesus appeals to his Father because it's not the forgiveness that they need between one another. It's the forgiveness they need from him. Before we ever get to a place where forgiveness on a horizontal plane makes a significant difference in our life, we need a forgiveness on a a vertical plane. We need him to forgive us. Because here's the deal. It's just like this. Let me, let me put it to you in these terms. Jesus is, is hanging on the cross as a result of God's wrath. God's wrath is real because his love is so intense for his creation. Had God not loved us, he, there would be no wrath. Had God not cared about his creation, there would be no wrath. He would have walked away, you know, he'd have been like Pilate, washing his hands and walking away. But he cared. And so when he sees sin, he's angry. And there's got to be a consequence for it because he is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He's just. And there is no way that this can be in his presence. And so his wrath puts his son on the cross. And through it, he is going to extend forgiveness. You see, God's forgiveness is the vehicle by which we begin to experience His grace and mercy. You cannot know the fullness of His grace and mercy. You can't know His goodness. You can't walk in His mercy if you haven't first experienced His forgiveness. Oh, you might see the benefits of it, and you might feel the benefits of it, but you can't know the fullness of it. You can't be in this place until He has forgiven you. So... This life, really, this, this, this horizontal stuff, apart from his grace and mercy and the and reconciliation that's worked out through his forgiveness, it ends in nothing. But once his forgiveness is applied and, and we have experienced his grace and his mercy and we walk together with others who have experienced his grace and mercy, as we extend forgiveness, we are extending his forgiveness. The experience, and, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, not the experience, but the forgiveness that we've experienced, the forgiveness that we've been given. And that's a forgiveness that lasts not just for the moment, It lasts not just for the day. It it, it lasts not just for the time until we die. It lasts into all eternity. Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not bound to this world. Our home's not even here. We have a lasting eternity that's everlasting, that's eternal, that will never fade or perish. And that forgiveness extends even to that point. You see, that's the forgiveness that we need. And see, Jesus wants us to have that forgiveness. He wants you to have that forgiveness. But let me, let me make this final point, and we'll just close up with this. This last point, it's not really explicit in this passage. But we have to deal with it because we can't walk away without knowing it. Jesus' appeal for God's forgiveness, for his Father's forgiveness, didn't automatically bring reconciliation. It didn't, it didn't promise these guys. It didn't promise us doesn't give us any confidence that these guys are going to be in heaven with us. His appeal to his Father's forgiveness doesn't seal the deal. It doesn't, it doesn't bring about reconciliation. The reconciliation that we so desire with forgiveness. See, the reality is, is there's another part 
Forgiveness is only half the equation. It's only, it's only half of what's got to happen. It doesn't remove our need for repentance. The best and easiest way to, 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 to illustrate this is, I'm going to fall over. The best and easiest way to illustrate this is, is not, through, not, not through this moment, I think, but really in the moment in which you're arguing and fighting with someone you care deeply about that's wounded you. It's a difficult thing. It hurts us. And when do you see the relationship really put back together? When you extend forgiveness? When the other person says, I'm sorry, does that automatically fix it? No, but when the person says, I'm sorry, and the person standing in the place of hurt says, I release you, and you remove that, that, that pile of garbage from between you, that's when you're able to walk together again. God says, his word tells us, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. He will forgive them. He's faithful to do it. He's just, he can forgive even the most evil act because he's put it on his son. He's allowed his son to pay that. He remains perfect as his son pays the price for us. And see, we have no confidence that these guys repented, that, that these people that Jesus is looking at as he prays this prayer, we have no confidence that they repented. But you can have every confidence that his forgiveness was made available to them. It was extended to them. Simply there for the taking. And for you and for me today, it's true. That same forgiveness. That same forgiveness that overlooks that his son had to be sacrificed in our place. Can you imagine how big a forgiveness that is that he's willing to overlook that his son had to die for us? That, that forgiveness that exchanges his son's righteousness for our sin, that forgiveness is available. And he says, all you got to do is confess, repent, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We started out, I told you that in the cross, we see how we're made acceptable worshipers. Step one, his forgiveness. Walk in it. Confess your sins. Repent. Get that garbage out from between you and experience the reconciliation in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are gracious, we are unworthy. Your word clearly shows us that. It, God, would you work now? In the midst of dealing with the, the, the struggle of who we are as humans, would, would you do your work? and Let this truth resound in our hearts, God, that we are able to walk with you as you have forgiven us in, in, and in our repentance. God, would you, in this moment, if there's, if there's a person here today, God, in this moment, would you challenge them to trust your son, to repent of their sins, to come and follow him?
I, I don't know the struggles and the relationships in the room. But I know, I, I know, God, that we fight against this in our hearts. We struggle with this in our hearts. Would you help us to forgive those that have wronged us? Father, I, I, I am grateful. I'm thankful that, that I can call you my God, my Redeemer, my Savior. And I thank you that your forgiveness has made this possible. I thank you, God, that you've, you, you've made that possible, not just for me, but for these people gathered here today, for your church. Would you just help us to walk in, in that light? It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.